Morning, Church of the Red Door. Good to uh, be with you today. I'm excited. You know what? I am I'm always excited. I tell you that every week. I'm excited. How can you not be excited about the Word? But this week uh, in particular, I think the, word, uh, the Lord really put something on my heart. And uh, the title of this message, and it ought to get a little reaction, Christianity is a fairy tale. And uh, this is, you know, what do you, most people think hey, it's some kind of fairy tale or or just a bunch of things that kind of came together hundreds of years after the fact, and how can we really know, and certainly couldn't you know, put our life into it. I mean, we might kind of give some mental assent to it and kind of give us, calm us a little bit when we think about death or something like that, but it certainly necessarily wouldn't change the way I live. A lot of people think that way. And uh, as we progress through this uh, looking account of the gospel of Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom, I want to show you some things this morning that I think would, uh, I hope, are going to have an impact. Look, I, I, Laura and I were praying before we even came on, and I think there's real power in what's going to be uh, spoken here this morning. I just pray that I'm able to do that. Are you ready to roll? Get your cup of coffee, get your uh, Bibles out, and uh, we're going to take off. Okay, here we go. Luke chapter 6, we're just going to read the first uh, few verses here, and then we'll progress all the way through 16 by the end of the, end of the morning here. So verse 17, Luke 6, verse 17. Now, prior to reading this, I just want to say this one last thing. You know, this last week, uh, just to, to kind of date this, uh, we, I found out, uh, as the world found out, about Bill and Melinda Gates and their divorce. And it kind of had some elements into it that kind of felt a little like Prince Charles and Diana and Camilla. And there was, you know, I, I, I won't speak to all of that because I don't know clearly any of the details, nor is it really any of my business, but not unlike uh, Prince Charles and Diane, I mean, that was certainly the fairy tale wedding of our lifetimes. And again, I'm not a big wedding watcher, but I even I tuned in a little bit to watch all the, the parade, the pageantry and everything, and we think about that, and then we see how that evolved, and then obviously the tragic death of Diana, and again, fairy tale spoiled. And now you have Bill Gates and Melinda Gates, and they had a somewhat of a fairy tale wedding, um, marriage. Uh, uh, you know, their foundation, the Gates Foundation, billions of dollars. They always seem to be together, partnering in these great exploits, and three children, and all the things that accompanied that. And now again, well, it's easy to get cynical about pretty much everything that we see on this earth. And so when we talk about fairy tales, we relegate those to children's fantasy, to something that you think about when you're a child, but as you grow up, you move away from those kinds of, that those stories, the way of thinking, because you're educated now. You really see things as they really are, and it's just sometimes we can become very cynical. It's a very fallen world we live in, and so fairy tales, again, relegated to the kids, but not so, as we're going to see this morning. So Luke chapter 6, verse 17, says, Jesus came down with them. If you'll remember, Jesus spent all night in prayer. Then he appointed, last week we looked at the chosen. We saw that he had selected 12 uh, really unqualified people. And now they are all, what, coming down together off this mountain that Jesus has been praying all night. He's coming down the mountain and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal regions of Tyre and Sidon, meaning there were some Gentiles uh, listening as well. Uh, that would be uh, north of Israel, modern day. 
and uh, where Assad is and Syria and uh, and uh, anyway, where we get that that whole picture of this raging battle today on the Mediterranean coast there. And so all those who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases and all those who were troubled with an unclean spirits were all, well, they were all being cured. I mean, this is the supernatural realm, right? And all the people were trying just to touch him because power was coming from him in healing them all. Okay, a couple of, a little bit of a backdrop here. This is a Luke's account, uh, many think, could be the same as the Beatitudes that you get in Matthew uh, 5, 6, 7, right in there. Uh, it could be that, but it probably uh, was another teaching. Some, some speculate that this was the Sermon on the Plain as opposed to Sermon on the Mount, simply because it says they were at a level place. Now, we don't know exactly. Obviously, Jesus would have taught similar things in various times and places, and I I tend to think that this was just a shortened version of some things that he had obviously gone more in detail, uh, as we'll get into in weeks to come on the Sermon on the Mount, but we get a portion of it here anyway. But I, I want to take you back a little bit and just try, try with me for a second to get a picture of Jesus descending this mountain, having prayed all night, now selecting the 12, and then him kind of in the middle or leading and then these 12 guys that we talked about last week, you know, fishermen and tax collectors and insurrectionists and all these kinds of guys following behind it because I'm kind of a movie buff. I can see it slow motion, maybe a little wind kind of blowing through their hair. And you see this all the, t all the time. I remember watching the movie Tombstone years ago. Uh, and, you know, the guys riding in on the horses and, and you had the posse coming and they kind of slow things down and you had uh, uh, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp and uh, Turkey Creek Jack Johnson, you know, they were the good guys battling the cowboy gang and uh, Johnny Ringo and some of these other characters that kind of emerged, Curly Joe, and they were going to have the, you know, the old Western showdown at the OK Corral kind of a moment. And, uh, and you kind of get this picture. You know, almost all movies have it. If you have a uh, some kind of a posse-like or uh, the good guys, they're riding in or they're walking in and then the movie kind of flows in and the camera kind of goes in on a tighter shot and then all of a sudden you see them, they kind of slow motion and they're walking. You can see the power. The, the, the funny part of this is, is that we know who these guys are. This is not Doc Holliday, who's the quickest draw in the West. This is not Wyatt Earp, you know, a known, a known guy with a rifle and all this other kind of thing. These are guys, these are fishermen. But this is Jesus' posse, if you will. And they're descending the mountain together, having been just selected, and no telling uh, what's going through their mind. We get all kinds of pictures of the disciples. These now would become apostles. Uh, we get all kinds of picture about them arguing and debating about who's the greatest and kind of infighting and jealousy and all this other kind of stuff. And I mean, these were just, again, completely and utterly unqualified people. Not too different than me. Maybe some of you are wise and much more educated than I am, but I, I, can, I can see myself and I'd probably be the one falling down the mountain, tripping on a stone and falling down the mountain. But here's the setting. And now Jesus is going to go into this unpacking of a whole new way of being human. He's going to be talking about things from another dimension, the way things operate in a totally different, a totally different realm. 
I think this was also clearly a very symbolic act. You know, Moses would have descended the mountain as they had come out of Egypt and he's leading the children of Israel. Uh, now they're in the wilderness. They're down in the, where the Midianites are, down in the Sinai Peninsula area and Mount uh, Sinai. And he, he descends the mountain now with the 12, well, with these commandments. And so he's descending and and now you have Jesus descending a mountain with uh, 12 characters that are completely and utterly unqualified. And what we know is that in some ways that was to be a constitution. Tim Mackey talks a little bit about this being a constitution. It's a, a way of Israel being a nation that is living under this one true God. And they knew, however, that this was going to fail. Even before that Israel had entered the promised land, God tells Moses that they're going to go in and they're going to fail. But here it is, here's a picture. And now Jesus comes down clearly with uh, kind of a new way of doing life. At least this Sermon on the Plain will give a picture and he's got his posse. Uh, not the 12 tribes now here, but clearly symbolically 12 disciples in some picture a representation of kind of a new order, a new Israel. And then he's gonna begin to describe for them as we'll see over the coming weeks, kind of a new way of being human, a new kind of constitution, a new way that Israel should operate. And oh, by the way, just there are people from Tyre and Sidon, the Gentiles are gonna be included as all the prophets had seen. Now this is gonna be a spirit-led movement. What Moses came down with was just a bunch of commandments we knew was never gonna work. Paul actually alludes to this in Romans chapter eight, verse three, and I'm gonna read from the New Living Translation here. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. In other words, Moses is descending. Get the picture, Moses descending, the commandments in hand. God knows it's gonna fail because of the weakness of sinful man. Now Jesus is descending with sinful man, but this, this time it's gonna take hold. It's gonna transform. It's gonna start a whole new community that we would call the church. Why? With even less qualified people than you could imagine. But there's going to be something different, and that's going to be the Spirit. And Jesus is going to begin to describe the kingdom that is going to be led by those who are filled with the Spirit. And this is what this is going to entail. And we'll see this again over the coming weeks. Now, so as they were descending, we had a new covenant now. We have a law that's going to be written on their hearts, not a law written in stone and a whole new heart and a new spirit. Now, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we've gone over and over this, but remember, the prophets had all seen this, and now's the moment. And I, again, I think that God uses these unqualified guys for making an exclamation point on, it's not gonna be through power or might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And again, that's what we get. But again, I think this is very symbolic. This is my view. So when I think about this, I think about, um, well, let, let me say this. I, this last week, as I was preparing for this, let, let me just tell you, I, I live in a supernatural realm. And so do you. If you're a born-again follower of Jesus, you should expect daily to encounter in some way God's providential hand in your life, orchestrating events, bringing the power of Jesus into your life through the Spirit. You should have that expectation, a constant expectation. I'm not talking about show-off kind of stuff. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm just talking about you know that you're, 
you're somewhere in between a seen realm and an unseen realm, and you, there's a crisscross here. And I think that's essentially what fairy tales are. They merge the seen with the unseen, and then there's this, there's this protagonist that's somewhere in between these two realms. And so anyway, this week as I was watching, I was... The, I, I, I've never watched Alice in Wonderland. I couldn't have told you the, the basic plot line. I just didn't know it, didn't care about it. It's a child's fantasy. And it came on and I called Tess and she came in. Oh, I love this movie. I love this movie. It's the greatest movie. And I think even Laura saw, oh yeah, I love this movie. And she came in and watched a little, little bit of it. And I sat down and I watched the whole thing, Alice in Wonderland. You say, well, that's what we're paying our pastor to do is to go out and watch Alice in Wonderland during the week. Well, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes you pay me just to sit and stare out the window and think about what I'm going to say to you in my office on Sunday mornings. But anyway, Alice in Wonderland, and as I was watching this, I, I was just so drawn in, and I don't know why. I mean, you know, the Mad Hatter and the Cheshire Cat, and, and here's this young girl, and it just captivated me from the very first scene till the very end. And of course, at the end, I'm thinking this is, in many ways, uh, an allegory of the gospel. I mean, you have a, she has to go down a hole. Alice has to fall down a hole and then she's exposed to this unseen realm. And I've told you about Field of Dreams or The Matrix or Forrest Gump or all these different things where somehow you've got this, these supernatural powers, these strange battle that's going on. And then you have this protagonist and I don't know, there's just always these amazing Jesus kind of portraits and pictures and this cosmic battle between good and evil. I mean, she falls down the hole. She realizes there's an unseen battle between good and evil. You have this, uh, what was her name? Uh, uh, the, the Red Queen. Uh, I think she was also referred to some other things. But anyway, and, and uh, what? Uh, Erasabeth of Krems, the bloody big head. Have, have you seen uh, at least the portrayal in this, in this case, Tim Burton's? Alice in Wonderland. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. She's the evil queen. She has all, all of her enslaved people that are fighting for her. The enslaved are fighting for the very person that's enslaving them. And now you have this battle between the white queen. And, and uh, it's just it just was a perfect picture. And then you have Alice come back out of the hole and she's completely changed. And now she engages the world with this a whole new idea about what it is to be a human. And that's the very first thing she comes down. She settles things in her own mind. And I'm going, this is what an allegory this is. The Cheshire Cat is a spiritual guide, almost kind of like the Holy Spirit showing up to kind of guide and help along the way. It's not a perfect allegory, but it's beautiful. So I, I did a little bit of research this week. I said, I don't even know who wrote this. Evidently, there's a guy uh, uh, that wrote this that is, we, we, we know him as Lewis Carroll. Uh, but his actual name was uh, Dodgson. Now listen to what uh, Karen Pryor says here. She says, Dodgson, Dodgson's writings bears subtle witness to the wonders of both creation and its creator in ways that deserve more attention. He was a committed, the, the writer of Alice in Wonderland, he was a committed lifelong member of the Church of England. Although he balked at taking holy orders, he was ordained as a deacon in the church in 1861 with his doctrinal views parted ways with those of his high church ancestors. His great-grandfather had been a bishop and his father a clergyman. Dodgson shied away from the religious controversies plaguing the church at the time, remaining essentially what would have been considered orthodox. Now listen to this. This is in a letter he wrote. Most assuredly, I accept to the full 
the doctrines you refer to, that Christ died to save us, that we have no other way of salvation opened us, but through his death and that it is by faith in him and through no merit of ours that we are reconciled to God. Dodgson wrote in a letter to a friend in 1987, and most assuredly I can cordially say I owe all to him who loved me and died on the cross of Calvary. And I'm just thinking it has to be. I mean, again, there's this cosmic beautiful battle that's unfolding in his writings and a tale. He was he was a little girl. He, he just kind of had this ruminating in his mind and he shared this on a boat ride from what I had read and this little girl says, you just have to write this story down and then hence Alice in Wonderland and it's stood the test of time. I think also of J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and others who wrote masterfully. Listen to what J.R.R. Tolkien, now by the way, he uses this word eucatastrophe that he actually uh, came up with. He invented this word. A eucatastrophe is a sudden turn of events at the end of the story, which ensures that the protagonist does not meet some terrible, impending, and very plausible and probable doom. The writer J.R.R. Tolkien coined the word by affixing the prefix "u," meaning good, to catastrophe. So catch this. catastrophe in his coining of the word means a good catastrophe. If you think about fairy tales, folks, they are all in some ways protagonists, antagonists, uh, a protagonist is just someone that has this vision and this goal, and an antagonist is someone who's trying to keep them from this ultimate goal. And, of course, we can see this in the cosmic play of the entirety of the, of the Bible. The Bible itself is a story that we start with. It's a story. It's a narrative. Why does the Bible start? In the beginning. We can go to Revelation chapter 12 and see this whole unpacking of the dragon and the, the, the woman who uh, uh, is Israel. Some think it's the church, but I think it's Israel specifically and eventually. And, then, and, then, and, and we get this man-child that comes and slays the dragon and you have the dragon that took with him all these various fallen angels. I mean, can you get this? That there's somehow there's this, there's this fairy tale idea that really underlies the entirety of the Bible. Now, some of you may be saying, is Jeff saying that the Bible is a fairy tale? Well, not unlike what C.S. Lewis says, it's actually the fairy tale that has come true. It's all the other stories that are accomplished in Jesus. It's amazing when you think about it. Listen to what J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, one of the great, great fairy tales of our day. I mean, it's made a gazillion dollars in the box office over these various things. And out of that was spun the Hobbit series and all this. My girls loved it. C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia and all the things and these beautiful pictures, these stories that we're all so drawn to. Here's what Tolkien says. He says, I would venture to say that approaching the Christian story from this direction it has long been my feeling, and a joyous feeling at that, that God redeemed the corrupt making creatures, that's what he calls men, in a way fitting to this aspect as to others of their strange nature. In other words, you're created in the image of God. The Gospels contain a fairy story. He calls them fairy stories. Or a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels. And that's what we're reading here, folks, in Luke 6. Marvels and powers going forward from him. And he's coming down the mountain with these, 
you know, here's the ultimate protagonist, Jesus, with a very specific end goal that we'll see over and over. It's not my time yet. Uh, uh, my time is not yet. He had a very specific goal and a knowledge that he would go to the cross. To do what? To release people from slavery. We can see over and over the Gospels are, and that's what Tolkien is saying here, the Gospels are in of themselves a picture of a fairy story. He calls fairy story. They contain many marvels, peculiarly artistic, beautiful, and moving, mythical in their perfect, self-contained significance. And among the marvels, if the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe, a catastrophe that is a good catastrophe. Again, his coining of the word. But this story has entered history and the primary world. The desire and aspiration of sub-creation has been raised to the fulfillment of creation. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. It's the ultimate story. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. This story begins and ends in joy. In joy, Jesus was brought into the earth. The eucatastrophe happens at the cross, but then he's raised from the dead and it ends in joy again. It has preeminently the inner consistency. Now catch this. Tolkien, the great writer of the Lord of the Rings, a storyteller of the highest order, it has preeminently the inner consistency of reality. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true. And none which so many skeptical men have accepted is true on its own merits. For the art of it has the supremely convincing tone of, of a primary act, that is of creation. To reject it leads either to sadness or to wrath. Now this is Tolkien, a fairy story writer, a fairy tale writer. Did you realize that Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and now we know about Dodgson, they were all committed followers of Jesus. Tolkien and Lewis, Lewis himself especially, would become two of the greatest apologists of their time. And to this day, when I read apologists, uh, defenders of the Christian faith, almost everybody always harkens back in some strain of thought, thinking through the lens and the voice of C.S. Lewis. It's amazing the impact that these men have had, and they loved fairy tales. So now Jesus is turning. Now what we may see as a symbolic act of this movement from the coming down of the mountain with Moses and the commandments now to the coming down of the mountain with these, you know, in the beginning, maybe insufferable kind of unqualified people is that he's about to overthrow hypocrisy and evil. Now you got to remember when we're talking about the religious leaders, Jesus would say in John chapter eight that you are of your father, the devil. In other words, but he also recognized that they were enslaved by Satan and he came to love and release from slavery the religious Jews of his day as well. We can't get a better picture of that than a later addition into the apostolic realm, which is the Apostle Paul himself, a religious Jew. So you've got to realize this is not God against 
enslaved people. It's God for enslaved people, whether they were enslaved by religious ideology and their own hypocrisy or not. But he came to save the world, and that included Jew and Gentile, religious and irreligious. So important to see. So is he overturning the uh, old order? Uh, No question. We looked at that the last few weeks. New wineskins. Is he describing? Now he's going to begin to describe. Is he the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain? He's going to begin to begin to describing a totally different way to do business, a different way to be human, a different constitution for a new people group, no longer Israel, but the totality of the church, which would include Jew and Gentile. Would this seem uh, utterly impossible? Otherworldly impossible? Of course. I mean, he already starts with supernatural, so we've got the elements of a fairy tale. You know, there's always a magic sword or something or potion or some kind of something that will seem beyond the laws of the physical world. And I love the line in Alice in Wonderland as she says, sometimes I can believe six impossible things even before breakfast. I mean, I love that line. Sometimes I believe six impossible things even before breakfast. Jesus is calling us to begin to believe into impossible things. Impossible, at least from our own experience. Our fairy tales don't work. And Jesus is saying, you need to believe into this. Our our fairy tales are relegated to children's little stories. Jesus is bringing this into the seen realm in a person, not some fabricated character. And again, we know Jesus is an historical figure. He is always there. Again, other writers talk about Jesus and the things he purportedly did. Now, it's maybe a matter of faith, obviously, at this point to believe that he walked across the water, that he healed, that he turned the water into wine, that that he actually was again raised from the dead. Of course, that's an article of faith, but it fits the story. So he's beginning to talk about a transfer, again, of leadership. Now, I need to, from the old to the new, now, it's very important that we go back into the prophets. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. I'm going to go pretty quickly. But if, you, you could, if you're taking some notes, write down Ezekiel chapter 34. Again, Ezekiel's writing over 500 years before the time of Jesus. And also Jeremiah, about 600 years before the time of Jesus. God had been saying that there was going to be this overturning of leadership. Overturning, and he would call these shepherds of Israel. And that one day he would come against the shepherds of Israel. Now realize that if you go back, some of this is specifically in reference to Israel. But remember, Israel's story is our story. So we won't try to go back and say, well, this particularly was only applying to that. This clearly was not only applying to the nation of Israel itself and during the time of Jesus, but it continues to apply to the church today. Ezekiel chapter 34. I'm just going to read a little bit of this, but... Again, Jesus' symbolic act, don't don't miss this, folks. Don't miss 17. Jesus came down, and he's talking about came down from the mountain with them. Again, get the picture. Here's his posse, you know, hair blowing in the wind. Here they come to change the world, to begin to describe another dimension, just like Alice in Wonderland, to describe a whole other world of good versus evil and flipping everything upside down. And eventually proclaiming release to captives and freedom to prisoners, as Isaiah had seen would be the case one day. Do you see that the Bible is a a fairy story come true of sorts? You have to understand that this is a 
an epic story. Ezekiel 34. What's Again, Ezekiel seeing a day where he's going to, uh, this authority is going to be transferred. Verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord, Woe, shepherds of Israel, you've been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you've not strengthened. The diseased, you've not healed. And Jesus comes on the scene, begins to heal them. The broken, you've not bound up. The scattered, you've not brought back. You've not sought for the lost, but with force and severity, you've dominated them. Now, certainly during the time of Jesus, you know, some five, six hundred years later, he you're going to see that that's exactly, they tied up. Jesus said, you tie up burdens for these poor people that you yourselves aren't even willing to carry. All their laws and their litigious nature. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for every beast of the field. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or to seek for them. See, Jesus knows these passages. He knows that these are also prophesying of him. So verse 7, Jesus knows this is him. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds didn't search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and not the flock. Hear the word of the Lord. Okay? I am against the shepherds. I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so they will not be food for them. I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among a scattered sheep. Do you wonder why Jesus, we've talked about this, but do you wonder why Jesus used Sheep and shepherd and all that language in John chapter 10, Jesus, because he, he knows the prophets. He knows he's God come to deliver the sheep. He says, I will care for my sheep and deliver them from all the places from which they have been scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. Now I'm going to ver- go down to verse 23. And then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now is this going to be a resurrected David? No, this is clearly in the line of David Jesus being in the line of David. Very important. That's why we have the genealogies that we, again, discussed. And he will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. See, when Jesus comes down off the mountain with his posse, he's, he begins to feed them. Not literally feed them, although he did on the Sermon on the Mount, but on the Sermon on the Plain, he's feeding them this, the words of life. Eat my words. They're true food. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I'm going to make a covenant of peace. New covenant. Again, Jeremiah had seen this. Eliminate harmful beasts from the land. They will live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I'll make them and the places around my hill a blessing. So when Jesus begins to see, uh, say, as we'll see in weeks to come, Blessed is he who is poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my namesake. As we see this emerge in his language, he's talking about blessing is coming, but it's a whole new kind of upside down realm, new dimension. Uh, We don't do that. Religious people operate in a totally different way. Jesus just upends it. 
It's what he's doing here in Luke chapter 6. I will cause showers to come down in their season and showers of blessing again. You want to be blessed? We're going to see that. And the tree of the field will yield its fruit and the earth will yield its increase and they will be secure on their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I have broken, again, the bars of their yoke and have delivered them from the hand of those who have enslaved them. Again, so we have this epic picture. Again, Ezekiel, over 500 years in advance. What's he seeing, folks? Let's try to pull back. What is Ezekiel seeing? What is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel? He sees a shepherd in the line of David coming to come and release these poor enslaved sheep. The shepherds are there to try to guide them, but they're not. They're feeding themselves and the poor sheep are lost and scattered and and, and where, where are the religious leaders? They're off caught up in all the things that they're caught up into. And God says, well, I'm going to have to come down and do it myself. And then he says, and I'm going to send this, this one, this, my servant David, this prince shepherd. All this has seen Jesus. Jesus is going to overturn it, take it away. And then look what Jeremiah had seen uh, some, you know, 50 years plus earlier. Look at what Jeremiah had seen. Jeremiah chapter 23, 1 through 6. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering my sheep of my pasture. Therefore, says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended them. Are you getting the picture here? God's saying the religious leaders aren't doing their job. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will no longer be afraid nor be terrified nor will any be missing. So now he's talking about not only is the prince shepherd going to be doing this, but he's also going to raise up other shepherds. Behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, Jesus again, the shepherd, he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And in his name, which is called the Lord our righteousness. So I'm going to raise up new shepherds. So I think this happens in a multifaceted way. It's certainly happening now. You know, Jesus chooses these 12, the symbolic kind of picture of Israel. They're coming down the mountain. Now they're going to have to be trained under this ultimate shepherd. They're going to be taking the power away from the religious leaders who were enslaved themselves by this dark force that Jesus would say, you are of your father, the devil. And as that happens there, that this is all about release and into the kingdom that all the prophets had seen. Moses had seen it. The Torah had revealed Jesus. Remember in John 5, Jesus said, if you've, if you've read Moses or the Torah then he was writing about me. He was writing about me. It's all being fulfilled in Jesus. Do you see this unbelievable fairy story? Fairy tale. Epic. Listen to uh, Jeremy McKean when he thinks too about the story as a grand narrative. The Bible isn't just any story. It's the story behind all of your favorite stories. It's the true fairy tale. 
C.S. Lewis was right when he said in the story of Christ, all other stories have somehow become true. <clears throat> How is this possible? And again, then Jeremy goes on to describe the woman and the dragon and the child and Jesus. And these are the three characters that you find in every beloved fairy tale, the rescued, the villain, the hero. But what John does by including the church in the story is he reminds his readers that they're, now catch this, part of the story. You, my friends, are part of the story. This is just not a fairy tale that happened years ago and now we're just a casual observer. We now become participants. They've handed the baton to us right here in the 21st century. Some of you live here in the Palm Springs area, you know? We've been handed the baton. We are called to do as the great shepherd did, seek and save the lost, the scattered, not to be worried about being persecuted for it. We will be. People will not understand. The very people that we're reaching out to with the glorious message of this epic story will sometimes turn on us. Of course that's the case. As Because well, it was the case with Jesus. It was the case with the apostles. Why would it not be the case with us? What if the reason, now catch this, what if the reason people love these ancient tales is because there is an echo of the tale that they are already in. Do you realize that I meet people every day, as you do. Deep down, they may complete, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, I don't believe in any of this, I'm, you know, I'm a scientifically minded person, I don't believe in these ridiculous fairy tales. But deep down, they sense there's a cosmic battle. My dogs don't think of that, but we're, we're created in God's image. We, we think out. That's why we're drawn to these stories. I love what Jeremy McKean says here. Somehow there is an echo of something that we're already living in. We can sense the devil on one shoulder and uh, the angel of light or something, God on the other shoulder, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, whatever. We sense it. We know when we've done wrong. We feel shame. We know that in areas of our life, whether it be addiction or other things, we feel enslaved and we're trying to claw our way out. We know that there's this somehow deep down we know. And so when we see the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lord of the Rings, Alice in Wonderland, or whatever it may be, it grabs us. We're drawn to it. And they have in an enduring quality what if little boys like to sword fight and little girls like to dress up in gowns because deep down they know the fairy tale story is their story? What if Frank Sinatra was wrong? Fairy tales don't come true because you're young at heart. Fairy tales are true because you're born into an epic battle and all of those tales that all of those tales point to. You know, I've, I've read some apologists who have said, you know, the reason that we're, why, everything that we have a hunger for, there is, a, there is something there to fulfill it. Like if we hunger for food, there's food on the earth. If we thirst, there's water there. Uh, there's all kinds of things that are built into us. Why do we have such a, a deep down desire to be part of an epic tale to see good win over evil. Of course, some are enslaved and they're blinded and they actually become part of the problem. But deep down, every human being, before the conscience is hardened, certainly as children, that's why Jesus said, you've got to enter as a child. 
If you're going to enter into this epic narrative, you're going to have to come to it as a child would come to it. Because this is a fairy tale come true in the person of Jesus. So, as we wind this down this morning, I, I Jesus is now going to move, move to the next stage. He's going to be talking about what it's like to operate down the rabbit's hole, if you will. Uh, uh, what, what, what is behind the scenes of what we can see? Is, is there some other dimension that's really pulling the strings of our lives? Jesus said, if you sin, you know, the Bible says if you sin, you're a slave of sin, period. So are, is there a master puppeteer up there in some ways? How much free will do we really have? And I mean, that's a, that's a deep theological quandary that we all run into. But clearly Jesus talked over and over about men and women being enslaved. And now he's coming to describe operations of a new order and that eventually through his death, there will be a release, not unlike Aslan, the great lion and the Beautiful Chronicles of Narnia, clearly a, a picture, an allegory of Jesus and the cross. So Jesus begins to use this word, uh, this, this beatitudes, these beatitudes. It actually comes from a Latin word meaning blessedness, divine joy, happiness. And he's beginning to say, blessed is the person. And we see this again, not only in the sermon, a shorter sermon on the plain, but also Sermon on the Mount. How does this other world operate? What does it look like? Will there be challenges? Will there be massive turning of fortune? I mean, sounds like a fairy tale. A sudden turning of fortune, a you catastrophe. Looks like a catastrophe, but it's a good catastrophe, to quote J.R.R. Tolkien. God is into the suddenlies. God does things suddenly. And he does in the case of Jesus. And as importantly, he can do it in your life today. Do you realize that suddenly you can fall down a rabbit's hole? Or if you watch The Matrix, suddenly you take the right pill. Pastor Paul's described this. Pick the blue pill or the red pill, and you're, you go down a chute, and you're in a whole nother realm. The Matrix was a similar allegory. And you're in a whole nother dimension. Suddenly, Isaiah 48, verse 3. You know God's into the suddenlies. I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted and they came to pass. God can act suddenly in time and space. He did with the children of Israel. He did in King David, the Goliath story. He did suddenly, but then suddenly Jesus, the ultimate shepherd, comes onto the scene. Or even in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. That's the Pentecost, the infilling and of the Spirit when it fell on them and these tongues of fire on their heads. Suddenly, things just happen suddenly. This is not about, folks, this is not about you going to seminary and sitting there thinking about it for the next 10 years and being trained and now, okay, now you're somehow a Christian. Suddenly, in a moment's time, every single place we get this, Alice suddenly falls down a hole. She chases a white rabbit and she falls down a hole. Suddenly, it can happen in a moment's time. Suddenly is, well, it's the born-again experience. So where we're going to pick up this up next week, 
is we're going we're gonna to go now to verses 20 through 26. Jesus is going to begin to describe what this other dimension looks like and how it overlaps with the scene realm. It's going to make you look crazy. It's going to lead to persecution. It's good to be hungry and it's good to be cold and it's good to be thirsty and it's good it's good to be meek. It's good what? I mean historically this just is not should not is not the case. The strong dominate. Not in God's realm. So again, I'm excited to continue next week with the sermon on the plain. And if you want to read ahead a little bit, start in verse 20 of Luke 6, and you can read ahead, and then we'll go back and try to unpack that next week. Okay, I hope this has grabbed you. I hope you realize, I, I, if you walk away with nothing else this morning, walk away with the, the full knowledge that Jesus is the ultimate protagonist. Come to release those enslaved, even those against him, those set against him, release those who are enslaved. The conquering of evil with good. He is the ultimate good. And we know it. We know this is true. We can feel, again, as Jeremy McKean said, the echoes of it in every other story that we are drawn to. It's not just wishful thinking, folks. It's the fairy tale that has come true. We love you. Hope you have a wonderful and glorious week. Can't wait to be with you next week and unpack the Sermon on the Plain.